this show, The Art of Vibrant Living. Super excited that we've got Dave Stringer on the show. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. Thanks to Longevity Drops, our sponsor for the show. And I'm especially excited for this show. Um, not only do we have Dave, we've got um, Accoutrement. Um, it's a rare opportunity for me to actually get to do a show um, in person. The live part, we do that regularly, but in person is uh, a nice bonus. And Dave, for those of y'all that don't know him, um, he's got a, a very cool story. Maybe we can uh, pull some of that out of how he got to be a spiritual musician, you know, for want of a better term. Um, it's not the worst term, though, right? Um, well, some musicians would maintain that all music is spiritual. So. Oh, fair enough. Okay, I can go with that. Um, well, I came across Dave um, first, geez, almost 20 years ago when I was a hardcore yoga student in Encinitas, California. And um, Dave came through uh, offering a kirtan evening. For those of you that don't know what kirtan is, um, I'm probably not the one to translate it, but I'll say it quickly as a, uh, a musical event that has devotion as part of it, uh, or singing to the gods. And, and I had never heard of Dave uh, before that, but I went to the show and I was just so touched and blown away by um, not just the, um, the, the, the music and the quality of that, the performance of it, the skill of the music, which is cool because that doesn't always happen in the Kirtan world, um, but also the, the energy that he created around it. So it was, it was, you know, it was part spiritual practice, it was part, part musical event, but it was also something that was really uplifting in ways that I didn't even understand, which probably will get us into some of what you're up to these days, which has to do with uh, neuroscience. And we're at a, such an exciting age where, you know, science and spirituality are coming together in incredible ways. Um, so Dave has continued on and, you know, from before that and on since then performed all around the world hundreds and hundreds of times and uh, been a, a nominated for a Grammy, um, has been a guest on my teacher training and come to Bali several times and taught there. Um, and performed with incredible musicians. So really excited and honored that you're here with us. Thank you, man. I'm always happy to talk to you. <laughs> um, I suppose I should uh, maybe get clear for your audience about what Kirtan is and where it comes from. Please, yeah. Let's start there, okay? So it's a, uh, from the perspective of the 21st century, I'm gonna say it's one of the world's oldest forms of consciousness modification. Um, my way into yoga is really the subject itself is consciousness. Um, there are a lot of people that put sort of pseudo-religious structures on top of it, but the, the actual fact is, is that yoga philosophy began as an inquiry into consciousness. And so everything that I've done subsequent to my involvement in yoga really can be put in the category, I suppose, of my process of inquiry. It's not necessary to believe in yoga. It's not necessary to believe in God. It's necessary to be propelled forth by your questions. One of the great texts of yoga philosophy, the Bhagavad Gita, actually starts with a chapter called The Doubt of Arjuna. Not like the great faith of Arjuna. The, the, the premise is that your questions, your problems, your obstructions um, are all opening doors into the practice of yoga. 
So yoga is using everything that you've got. Uh, you know, I have this one friend who's read pretty much every book that he could find on yoga. But he's never actually practiced it. <laughs> okay. And, and I just laugh at him because I'm like, dude, all the books that you've read will tell you nothing. Actually, you know, it's all framing the discussion. It's all interesting. But unless you actually practice, nothing actually happens. So you have to start there. He's like, well, I'm not ready. You know, I need to know so much more. I'm like, no, the first thing you need to know is that you don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, your practice takes you forward. But for a long time, the philosophy of yoga has been chanted and not written down. It, it, it was alive in the form of the people who, who sang the mantras that contained the philosophy. And for a long time, that proceeded. Uh, Brahmin priests who were in the upper strata of society held this knowledge within them and passed it down to generation upon generation. There, however, was a conflict between what yoga taught and the way it was taught. Yoga taught that each person has access within them to like the fullness of like truth, beauty, wonder, love, consciousness, however you want to define it. Um, and then in this way, that as, as all as little particles, you know, emanating from the same source, that we were equivalent. That's a pretty radical way of looking at the universe and at the role of the individual. But it was taught in this tremendously hierarchical system. And, and uh, so along comes the bhakti movement in roughly the 15th century that says, wait, yoga belongs to everybody. And they started to literally take it out of the temples and into the streets. And they taught people simple mantras uh, that people who are not educated could understand and get stuck in their heads. So it was a kind of like pop music of the streets, you know, at its time. And its subject was essentially people going around saying something to the effect of like, I am God, which, you know, is also a <laughs> way of proceeding and kind of a radical statement. So, um, so the Kirtan movement begins, and that's actually where the transmission of yoga philosophy on a wide level starts. So if it weren't for those bhaktis in the 15th century who took the message seriously, we wouldn't have yoga all over the world. It would still be being taught kind of in secret by special people to other special people. So uh, many people come to yoga to practice asana. That's their way in. And they're, they're like, do we have to do all this chanting? And it's like, well, no, you don't. You can start anywhere. You know, you, I mean, some people's yoga practice is just to like sit and breathe and pay attention to their breathing. Um, and that's really the fundamental thing in any case. But once you start practicing asana, there's a rich world of philosophy that, that opens to you because in a sense, your body is already philosophical. You know, when you have to confront your obstructions, you are immediately, once you get past like the physical barriers, you know, uh, I think many people find that actually the biggest barrier is their mind. You know, the sense, I can't do that, or I'm to this or something or other. So all these practices are about confronting the barriers in the mind and providing means by which we can, you know, push past those boundaries. So chanting is a way of uh, triggering mass ecstasy. 
And it's a joyful practice. It's, it's process and it's product are entirely, you know, uh, integral to one another. And, uh, and it's fun to sing with other people. Um, and you can't go away mad. Something about singing like transforms your vibe, you know. You mean mad as an angry, as not as in crazy ecstasy. Well, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess there's a question, you know, like how, how, how mad is it to be as in crazy to be ecstatic? Well, uh, Krishnamurti said, right, to be well adjusted to an insane society, right. not a sign of sanity. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, this is uh, this is maybe something that we should value more in our society. Uh, but uh, so one of the things I've been, you know, uh, privileged to be able to do is to talk about how the philosophy of yoga is embodied in, in the practice of chanting uh, to many of Daniel's students in Bali and in other places um, and uh, to uh, to try and connect these different uh, realms of yoga, but one of the things that particularly has motivated me, uh, because I'm fundamentally an agnostic, which surprises people because I'm a kirtan singer and they assume that I'm singing to God, um, I, I, I would say that I'm just singing, uh, and then things happen, and it connects me deeply to my sense of wonder and the transcendent, and if you want to use the word God for that, you're entitled to. <laughs> be careful about it but in any case um uh but i've always wondered like why how does this work you know how how is it that we come equipped for ecstasy why is it that if i don't know anything about yoga that if i practice it that stuff happens you know so the process of inquiry continues in this regard um those questions have led me to investigate the neuroscience of what happens. And I've come to see the way a chant unfolds as being a kind of textbook way of particularly uh, working with the autonomic nervous system to um, create a kind of sense of transcendent weightlessness, I guess at one way that I would describe it. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what's your experience? <laughs> That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Th thanks for you know, sharing all of that. Um, well, I think, you know, not only do uh, a lot of our viewers may maybe not know the, the story of Kirtan and how it came to be, a lot of the people in the yoga world don't know all of what you shared that. And it's such an interesting time we're in, right, where there's more division um, happening politically and culturally than, than you know, in, in a long time, say. Um, and there's also more connectivity happening in a certain way, too. And that yoga, what is, you know, still growing in popularity and yet was at one time very, um, as you said, special people for special people. Um, and that nobody owns yoga now. And there have been lawsuits about that. Um, and nobody owns singing. Um, and, I, you know, I love what you said too, that it's, it's practical on the level yoga is. It's not about what you know and learning and you know your friend and all the books. And, and that's what I love about yoga is it's, um, it's a practical philosophy. Right. You know, it's a great philosophy. And that's why we always have fun talking because right, right. we love philosophy. 
Um, and this says, you know, and you got to actually do something to make it work. Um, so to answer your question, though, for me, with singing, um, even like when we first met, I uh, hated singing because I grew up afraid that I couldn't sing. And people told me I was tone deaf. It's surprisingly common trauma. Not to diminish your <laughs> but no, I've just encountered a lot of people. And it's really funny because music uh, is so important to us neurologically. In some ways, you could say it's like it's the operating system. If you see people who whose minds have come apart through particularly, say, dementia or Alzheimer's, mm. the thing that seems most able to put them back together is music. Like when they hear like an old song from like when they were growing up or something like that, they become instantly like themselves in a way that was recognizable. You know, mm. um, and so it seems so deeply embedded, you know, in 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 our emotional lives and the way that we connect to one another. It's really surprising that we don't, just as we teach children to ride bicycles, you know, we ought to be teaching children how to keep time and match a pitch, you know? Um, you could say that even evolutionarily, we're adapted for music. Uh, music and ritual connect us together in ways that allow us to cooperate. When we can cooperate, we can better survive. So in some ways, uh, it's hard to say what, all the many different families of early human beings were, but um, let's just say that the the species of of of, uh, uh, of hominid that survived to this day is one that was very practiced with ritual and music, and uh, and practices that conveyed an intense sense of connection, a sense of like wonder and mystery, and that we're adapted for that. Mm. Um, so to, uh, even though, you know, musicians are often struggle to make a living and they're often kind of at the margin of society, when our transitions happen, when we need to celebrate, when we need to mourn, like music becomes essential. Um, it's deeply embedded in our emotional and lives. Like in many ways, I could say we truly can't live without it. So to practice yoga, um, we always have to look at our abilities and move toward that where we, we find ourselves either in a place of resistance or deficiency, you know? Like we all love to do the stuff that we're good at. You know, like I love back bends, okay? <laughs> but my forward bends are like problematic, right? So of course, if you left my own devices, I'll just do back. <laughs> you know, but a real yoga teacher is going to say, oh, Dave, you know, let me show you how these things are related. Okay. So the ability to hold a pitch is also related to the ability to like focus your mind, mm. to take in information from outside and adjust yourself to it. And it's not a difficult, once you get it, you won't lose it. Once you learn to ride a bicycle, you could not ride a bicycle for 20 years and still be able to jump on. So it's just a, a bit of learned behavior. It's very useful. Yeah. Well, you know what I eventually I learned about that is it also has had a lot to do for me. And I'm curious if this is a, a typical thing for musicians. Um, you know, like everybody knows this and I just thought I discovered it, but that it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's where 
the ability for me to hear myself and hear what's going on out there at the same time. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? And, you know, the, the psychological, spiritual, <laughs> metaphoric implications of that are huge. They're massive. Yeah. They're massive. And that's why we practice these things, because ultimately the yoga is so useful, metaphorically at least, uh, you know, in so many circumstances that we find ourselves in. So the more that I've been able to take practices of chanting pranayama asana and see how they're applicable to the world in any situation, uh, and the more you know, the more intensely involved I become mm -hmm. in yoga. Um, but there is uh, an interesting trick that occurs with physical practices such as asana and and particularly pranayama and singing. Okay, it involves moment of neuroscience people um your autonomic nervous system of which you have two component parts sympathetic nervous system which can be called like your excitation response or your fight or flight response um right and uh your parasympathetic nervous system which is your chill out <laughs> i'll act it out okay. for you yes. Yes. i'll be the nervous system um so the thing is is normally they act in uh, in sequence, right? So the hypothalamus is constantly trying to achieve a kind of middle state. Uh, it's 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 issuing signals to like speed up, slow down, you know, to try and keep things balanced. So what happens is if you get too excited, the, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in to kind of chill you out. At a certain point, you're too chilled, and you're like, this is boring, and you you search again for excitement. And so our days go, you know. Um, but there are certain human activities that can cause both aspects of the autonomic nervous system to fire in parallel, okay? And so the way this works, and one of them is, uh, well, I should say singing, dancing, vigorous physical activity is one way, um, and a subset of phys uh, <laughs> vigorous physical activity that most people are familiar with is the ecstatic practice of sex which also causes both aspects of the autonomic nervous system to fire. So you are, you know, at the moment of orgasm, maximally excited and maximally relaxed. And so these kind of reactions are what kirtan is triggering. It's also what a vigorous vinyasa practice can trigger. If you ever have that 108 sun salutations kind of experience, mm -hmm. there's a certain point where you drop deeply into the relaxation of your breath, you have to, or you're not going to make, make it through, but yet the repetitive activity stimulates the synthetic nervous system. So what's happening in yoga practice is first you connect yourself deeply to your breath. And that triggers a relaxation response. So you become, and anybody knows this, this is why in our culture, if you say, hey man, take a breath, <laughs> Um, everybody gets it, like, yeah, taking a breath calms you down. So you become first established in this, but then as you engage in repetition, particularly as things speed up, it stimulates your excitation response. But here's the thing, because you're maintaining connection to the breath, because your breath is measured and regular, it, your relaxation response is not least it, it persists and so the excitation response comes in like 
in parallel with it. And that feels great. We love this because to feel really relaxed, but also really present, really and really aware is like that's a state that when you find yourself in it you're like i want to do that again mm -hmm. you know so in many ways what we're doing with yoga practice and with chanting is is giving people experience in like what that state feels like um and it really only takes in my experience about 15 20 minutes to cultivate um not much longer um, it's necessary to hold things slow for a little while so that people become really grounded in it and to let the mind kind of do what it does, you know. Um, many times people uh, in a kirtan, because it will start slowly and repeat over and over, be like, wow, this is, this is just going to be the same thing over and over again. <laughs> this is boring. <laughs> And then your mind just starts to like go into like this thing you got to do, this thing you got to do, and then it just persists. Yeah. At some point, you settle into it. And I'll say this from like perspective of asana practice too. Like the first thing for me, I'm like I just encountered my resistance. Like that's the first part of it completely. It's like Rah. I don't like the way he's teaching today. I don't want to do this pose. <laughs> I feel cranky about this, that, or the other thing. You know, there's something on my mind. And like the first few fifteen minutes of practice. It's like one of like, why did I come, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And all this stuff comes up. And then there's a point where you just go, like you just drop it. And then you're just there. Then yoga begins. And, um, and that's where the excitement of it comes, is at that point when, when both of these systems kick in, it's almost like, you, um, like you're present, but you're not bound. Like, you know, the self is aware, but it's not restricted. Mm -hmm. And like, that's, that's the beautiful golden thing, right? Yeah. I mean, in, in yoga terms, and in every spiritual tradition of terms, this is where the, the small self merges with the big self, right? And, and that's, that's ecstasy. That's what everybody wants. And, you know, and, and there's, I'm so excited that we, not only technology and science is catching up to it these days, the research and academic research is too. Right. You know, and there's so much exciting stuff around it. Sexuality is one of the greatest entrances to it. Music, right. physical activity. And then I have to say this part because it's, you know, so dear to me, just breath. Yeah. Right. And using breath in so many different ways. Um, and that's why for me, that's why it's the core of spiritual practice. That's why it's the core of what I teach, the breath. And of course, when you combine all of those things, right. and I know that's something you talk about with in the power of kirtan type, it's, there's also the breath involved in it. Right. Right? And I want to um, steer us a little bit because there's a couple ex extra exciting things happening right now. Well, one, the research you're doing and engaged in, um, and I want to talk about entrainment and that concept. Because yeah. not everybody knows that uh, that lingo. Everybody knows, of course, the experience of it. Um, and also, you're about there's a film that's about to come out that you are part of, featured in. Um, and well, let's let's start there because that's always uh, interesting for people, and uh, and it's coming out really soon, right? Yeah, there's a, actually, today's March 16th. I think the New York premiere is, is the same. 
And uh, the Los Angeles premiere is April 6th. And I think screenings are rolling out over the country. There's a, a new, uh, it's funny, the, the revolutions that have hit the music industry are not hitting the film industry in the sort of kind of like do-it-yourself you know, oh, like yeah. realm. And uh, for films with um, uh, more of a documentary uh, appeal, um, as opposed to like mass, you know, black bear kind of you know, appeal. Um, uh, there's a service called Gather now in which people are able to host screenings in in their communities, in movie theaters, you know, mm -hmm. and just like Thursday night, whatever, we're having a screening of this movie. And a number of films with yoga or spiritual appeal, like Walk With Me and Awake, uh, have, have gone out this way, where as opposed to a big massive opening and playing for a few weeks in a, you know, a cineplex near you or whatever, people host screenings uh, wherever they are and sell tickets. To, you know, so they're rolling out mantra sounds into silence that way uh, with premieres on either coast, but then I think it, you know, people are invited to host screenings all over the country and so going on for who knows, you know. Uh, and worldwide. Um, so, um, but the movie is a survey of um, really one of the kirtan scene is, is, has become a kind of a worldwide this folk music movement. Um, uh, from my perspective, because I've played all over the world, uh, I've seen how it's become a kind of international community. Uh, and how the practice of singing together is something that has kind of enriched people's lives and brought them together um, in communities, particularly um, people who are in yoga, practice yoga, tend to be refugees from one organized religion <laughs> or another. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the film is coming out, um, and uh, there are a lot. There are there are eight or nine different. Kirtan musicians that are interviewed, um, and uh, I also introduce uh, my friend uh, Andrew Newberg, who's a neuroscientist, who uh, wrote a book that I read back in the day, long before I met him, called "Why God Won't Go Away." And uh, in it, he says it doesn't really matter. He, he calls himself a neurotheologist, and uh, he says if if God did, it doesn't matter whether God exists, like we have a neural structure that will create it one way or another. So um, uh, anyway, I discussed the neuroscience of, of, of ecstatic states, uh, introduce him. And I also in the movie talk about uh, the sort of radical social action implications of Kirtan. So, wow, okay. Yeah. So maybe, is there, is there a trailer? Well, there is a trailer and, and, and um, I think we'll play that in a couple of moments. Okay. Um, before that, though, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, because um, Longevity Drops is, uh, well, when I was a kid, I used to um, sell stereos. And um, <laughs> there's no, some drops here. I'm just no, no, those are different drops. <laughs> <laughs> we, we love natural healing and all kinds of drops, but those are different ones. Um, longevity Drops are, um, what I was going to say is when I was a kid, I used to sell stereos and TVs. I worked for a company called Circuit City. And I was really good at it. And at the time, I loved stereos and TVs and car stereos especially. And that was why I was good at it. And, and part of why I love talking about longevity drops, I mean, one is I'm grateful that they sponsor the show and allow us to do this. But two, 
is that it's it's real stuff. It's really good stuff. It's totally natural stuff. You know, chaga mushroom alone would make it worthwhile, but then you mix in the Romania and the cordyceps and do it in a really high quality way. It's, um, and it's so easy, you know, it's like you take a dropper full and put it under your tongue and it tastes good. Um, so thank you to Longevity Drops. And also um, quick word, because um, I love the way we can riff around and who knows how quickly our time is going to go. I want to tell y'all about um, my new program, which is uh, a mentorship membership. And I'm so excited, just in the same way I'm excited about the fact that we can come together like this in, um, in, you know, in my friend's studio called Shanti Shala. Thank you, Jody, for allowing us to use it. Um, and that we can, you know, create this and reach people in ways like for me, you know, when you came to the trainings that I did in Bali, that was such a hassle <laughs> I mean, on the level that, well, you know, I had to fly you over there wow. and people spent, well, that was great. <laughs> yeah, that part was great. Um, and then going on a trip is fantastic, but, and not everybody has 26 days to give of their life or thousands of dollars. And so what I'm saying, and actually, I haven't told you about this before. My, my new program, what I've created is a membership where people come together for a virtual satsang, sangha uh, community. And I get to teach in ways like this. And, um, and it's so much easier and more affordable, largely because technology has made it so easy for me to work. So I'm super excited about that. If, um, if y'all are interested also until the end of the month, um, anybody who joins will get a private one-to-one -one coaching session to sort of accelerate your progress and uh, really define your goals and take some steps with it. Cool. So all that said, um, I think we're probably ready to roll the trailer. Um, is there anything we should know beforehand? No, it's just a, it's a minute that tells you what the movie is. <laughs> I'm in it somewhere, and, you know. All right, so. cool. All right, are we ready, Tom? I'm uh, assuming so that, um, did you hear what he said? Something about it's coming up right now. It's coming up right now, excellent. Yeah, cool. Well, and um, our monitors Mantras are, you know, they're not descriptive things. <laughs> they're like yeah. boulders Tom, of, when, when of energetic on. sound. There was some part of me was like, oh, this is way too hippie. But in the same time, <laughs> I felt I needed a big change in my life. It's not about even losing yourself. It's about becoming yourself. I was searching for something that made sense. The American vision of meeting someone, getting money, all of that. And still, it was like I was empty inside. We're seeing a shift in the function of a very essential structure in the brain, the thalamus, that probably changes the way we see reality. When we chant, it turns out that you have an experience that your, your boundaries soften. The bottom line is uh, making that connection is what given me the power to actually exist, even in this realm of things. One, two, three, four! Karuna, Sadarima, Karuna, Sadarima, hey! 
bhakti yoga and meditation um, saved my life. But that's so cool to see. Um, and it looks like it was really beautifully shot and... Yeah, the, uh, the filmmaker is out of Georgia Lease, is out of, uh, she's Swiss, but she, uh, she lives in Barcelona, and uh, a guy named Maury Holm is responsible for the cinematography, which is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And so uh, tonight in New York, two weeks from now in LA. I think there's another premiere event, in, I want to say in Boulder, Colorado, on the 18th of April. And then um, beyond that, just screenings all over the place. I, I think the website's mantramovie.com. You can figure out how to either host a screening or attend one somewhere. Cool. All right. Well, now I want to um, dive a little deeper into, we'll see where this goes, but there are, there are like three strains that are speaking to me right now. Okay. One is you talked about um, Andrew Newberg and his work, which is uh, neurotheology, mm -hmm. which, um, I learned about when uh, when I got into the research being done about the flow state and the way that's evolved, you know, and I so loved when um, when that became a buzzword in positive psychology and in uh, and, and, and a lot of what's being taught in terms of performance. I said, well, hey, what we call yoga flow, right? Vinyasa. Um, so there's this work being done in the flow state, but also where that's um, coming together with spirituality, Andrew's neurotheology, meaning in some ways the, the, the brain science of spirituality in a sense. Um, and, and then there's a concept that we tossed out earlier called entrainment. Um, and maybe I'll just explain what entrainment is quickly um, and then turn it over to you to see <laughs> how you integrate these pieces. And, and you know, I wanna hear about more about the research that you and Andrew were doing and, and what's coming up with the, with the measuring of ecstasy. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, okay, well, let me rephrase to uh, clarify ecstasy. Um, one way of defining ecstasy or ecstasis from its origins is actually this, what we might call divine state when we go outside of ourself and, you know, for me, all of this, and really, uh, I'll confess in a way, the art of vibrant living um, is the name of the show, and everything that is part of my work and goes in with that is really about remembering and discovering who we are on a spiritual level, on a fundamental level, whatever the belief system is around that. Um, and what entrainment is, is a concept everybody knows, it's when... Well, if, if, if everything is frequency and we are all operating at different frequencies, entrainment is when the frequencies come together. It's the principle of way when an opera singer hits just the right pitch and a glass shatters, or why um, clocks, uh, old style clocks in a clock shop will all entrain, in other words, get in sync with the biggest pendulum there, um, or where women living together in a dormitory will their menstrual cycles will tend to align. Um, and, you know, and I think of it often from yoga. And when I teach yoga asana classes, you know, the physical movements, the main thing that I'm going for really is get people breathing 
and then get everybody entrained. And there's this magic that happens when, when we're breathing and moving together for a specific aim for a, you know, there's an intention in it too. So that's my um, not so short definition of entrainment. Um, over to you, how's this all integrating? How's it integrating? <laughs> well, um, I would say that you know, when people sing together and dance together is the original form of entrainment. Um, so we um, uh, are, in, to harken back to something I said earlier, we're, we're adapted for that. Um, the more that we engage in activities that allow us to entrain, the better we are able to cooperate. But one of the things that, you know, this is leading us toward is uh, most of the research that's occurred on ecstatic states or entrainment states have actually been conducted on individuals. And, but it's like trying to know how a flock of birds like moves by studying an individual bird. You can't know that. Um, and consciousness um, appears to be something that we share, but there's a reason why we haven't been able to find the origin of it. Um, uh, for one, we have a dominant ethic right now that science is attempting to explain how consciousness arises from material matter. It's been not able to do so. Um, yoga philosophy says, well, of course, because actually from that perspective, physical matter arises from consciousness, okay? So in some ways it can be said that science has it precisely backwards and there are more and more scientists that are coming around to that view that consciousness itself is the substrate of, of the universe and everything else is a kind of a condensation of that. Um, but um, so, What's important uh, with regard to entrainment is actually how we link up and how we are joined in consciousness. So rather than thinking of it as me taking my consciousness and linking it to your consciousness, it's rather that there is consciousness and our awareness is becoming linked to that central source of all. Um, and that involves slipping the boundaries of, a, you know, what often is called the ego or that sense of separation, okay? One thing that happens neurologically in this um, has to do with, like, blurring the distinction between subject and object. Um, there is a part of um, uh, your brain in the parietal lobe, which is up here, from a yoga perspective, you know, the crown chakra. But, um, but within the structures of the brain, the parietal lobe um, does many things, but what's important here is, the, is that it provides a sense of like body image. So it's giving us a sense that like my body ends here and the world begins here. So it's creating a picture of separation. It's a useful one because you know, if you didn't have it, uh, if everything seemed all just connected, um, then uh, you would not even bother to look walking across the street and like, you know, you're dead, you know? Um, so evolutionarily, we have adapted like this sense, a strong sense of individualism, you know? 
because it, it on one hand helps us to survive, on the other hand, it works against our survival. So it's kind of paradoxical. But what happens in when you are engaged in training activities is that uh, activity in the occipital, the back part of the parietal lobe, uh, begins to diminish. And when people report a state of like deep connection or a feeling of like softening of the boundaries of self, um, it's reflective of something that is actually occurring from a neurological standpoint. Uh, if you look at blood flow with an MRI, you can see that there's diminished blood flow to this area of the brain. So what's interesting about this is that scientifically, both your state of separation and your state of union are both true. So neither is, I mean, either, in a sense, neither is an illusion or they're both an illusion. But in either case, the brain is responsible for, for creating this. Um, when we engage in entraining activities, though, we, we have a palpable sense of being uh, in, I guess, um, an unbounded state. Um, we feel less distracted. Um, we feel more responsive to like blood arises. Um, so in some ways, I guess you could say that we're more connected to like the flow of consciousness itself uh, in the same way that like if you can visualize that as a kind of river and each of us are like a, you know, like a, a bucket or something you know, that's in it, um, you get only a certain amount of the river in the bucket, but if you break the edges of it, then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, you're the river again. So entrainment um, and practices that do, that, that help to engender that experience, you know, connect us to the source of consciousness itself from a yogic perspective. Um, there are certainly definitely scientists who will argue against that. Um, and I will say that research budgets and professional reputations get staked on certain premises as much as science does have within it uh, a uh, mechanism by which it eventually can overcome uh, things, you know, beliefs or uh, theses which prove to be false. It still can take generations because people are people and they've got their turf to defend. But it can be said that many aspects of science, particularly where it refers to consciousness, um, are beginning to come around to look at things from a rather fundamental Eastern perspective. Um, and I find that really interesting and relevant to, to yoga practice itself. Um, yoga itself takes this big worldview of looking for the commonalities within different cultural and spiritual practices and how they reference consciousness. So, um, you know, yogis tend to be people who are quite comfortable, you know, like uh, drawing sustenance from Zen Buddhism here and, you know, quantum physics there. Yeah, yeah. well, and fundamentally the, the premise of yoga is it's all relevant, right? Because it's, it's all part of it. And that's, you know, so exciting the age we live in where we right. get to bring it all together. Right. Um, all right, well, two strains come um, next for me here with where we're going with this. One is 
here you are all this time holding uh, a guitar in the harmonium sitting in front of you. Um, and probably not even everybody knows what a harmonium is. Can you uh, see the harmonium? Um, yeah, sure. I guess might as well um, lift it up a little bit then so everybody can see. And um, yeah, can you see it? Here it is. Um, yes. It's you know, a, uh, it's a little keyboard. It's a little keyboard and it breathes. I love that. It does breathe. It holds a drone, but it also keeps the melody. And singers use it to accompany themselves. It holds up into a little suitcase, like it's in the overhead rack. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't normally play it this way, but here's at least you can see it. Um, and uh, you know, it's actually it's funny people see it as a traditional kirtan instrument, which it, it is, but people are surprised to find that its origins are French and the British brought it to India. Uh, Indians kind of chopped it down so you can play it cross-legged, and um, and it's often used. I don't know if it's in the frame now, so and hold it up since we've only got one camera. Um, so um, people would use it to support mantras. May the wicked become good, may the good obtain peace. May the peaceful be freed from bonds, may the free set others free. There's a ton of mantras that are, you know, full of juicy stuff. Um, here's another, I'll just give you a, you know, cavalcade of a medley of mantras. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this one is rather famous, I think, you know, for yogis. Asitoma Satkamaya Tamasoma Jyoti Kamaya Ritsyoma Amitam Kamaya And if you just keep that going, I know we've done it in Bali, you know, around fires and things like this, and people chanting something like that over and over and over for like an hour is really transcendental trippy experience and the mantra itself is saying you know lead me from uh from what is what is false to what is true lead me from uh the state of like darkness and heaviness uh to uh one of unbounded experience uh lead me from that which is essentially from the transient eternal which is the whole point of these practices is to shift our away from the transient to, to the eternal but you know there's a bunch of different traditions here you know um some of the mantras i was just chanting you know are from like the vedic tradition um and those would be more difficult um something like asatoma satgamaya tamasoma jyotinyagamaya is complicated but still something you can memorize yeah right and um and uh, there are other simple mantras. I'll stay in the harmonium here for a moment. Uh, Om Namah Shivaya is often one of the first ones that. Um,
into chanting mantras. And they say, well, it's really soothing to sing the sounds oh and ah like this, but what does it mean? You know? And often what I tell people is, well, listen to it. Like, what does it, what does the sound oh mean? What does the sound mm mean? What does the sound ah mean? What does the sound shh mean? And and so on. Um, each of the mantra, each of the sounds of the mantra conveys an experience. You can meditate just on those sounds. Like, oh, gives you a sense of openness. Mm, gives you a feeling of closeness. So just in the word om, there's a connection vibrationally or experientially. Like being open to the world and then integrating that. So there's a connection between what is massively big and what is intimately close. Okay, and there's your word om, which represents essentially the totality of all things. And the sounds aren't just random. I mean, it's those sounds are, are, are deeply integral to the way you experience it and its meaning. Um, it's used, mantras are used in some ways to give the mind something to do uh, because it needs a toy. And uh, in the process, um, uh, while it's busy playing over there, you know, like the essence of you uh, is is connected to the essence of all. Um, so to chant a mantra like Om Namah Shivaya, which means literally Om salutations to Shiva. Shiva is a metaphor of how uh, creation arises from destruction. How letting go of one thing allows you to receive another thing ends, another begins. Uh, people come to yoga thinking um, they want to get something, and but yoga steadfastly says, well, maybe first you need to let go of something. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's your ego, maybe it's your expectations, maybe it's your attitude, your anger, some deeply held belief that is incorrect about yourself, you know, all of these things. So the mantras contain within them metaphors. Um, however, those, some of the things that I was just singing are used often more in a kind of ritual environment. The kirtan is quite something else. They often have different uh, little stories in them. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting to riff on those things to them here. For example, um, a famous mantra is Sri Ram J Ram J J Ram. Okay. And hey, before we go on, yeah. I'm, I'm sensing that our time is is running is, out. Is, is run, okay. It's coming. We're coming. We'll come right. to a close soon. Yeah. Um, so maybe. Um, and I, I like the direction we're going in. Right. And I'm and I'm curious for for y'all watching or listening. Um, I invite you to notice just as you hear what happens automatically to your breath and then as that's happening what's going on with your state because and i just had you know the great experience of you know being here and as you're talking about it like well, it's just that automatic invitation to breathe in a different way right. the relationship between our state and our state and our state and breath is so cool all right, but you were about to say. Well, I was going to um, actually sing just a minute of this mantra. It's a kirtan. Uh, and kirtan's usually sung in a calm response fashion. So 
uh, a leader sings out the mantra and then people sing back and uh, there's a little model of the world in it and that we give out to the world and then we receive back to the world. So there is a call and response that in a sense that we're engaged in, but it also allows people to maintain a connection to their breath. Uh, when you sing together, everybody naturally breathes at the same time, which is an interesting link up thing pursuit of entrainment as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, in order for us to successfully entrain, um, linkage of the breath is, is really the fastest way to get there. So if you have a bunch of people, whether they're singing in tune or not, if they're breathing simultaneously, they have linked up in a very powerful way. Um, so singing allows people to do this. And it's also why it's important, you know, in an asana practice, if the instructor is, is giving breath, that if everybody follows that timing, we link up. I know some people are like, ah, I don't want to breathe that way. I'm going to breathe my own way. It's like, well, fine, but you're not going to enter into this transcendental space in which we're all connected. So that's what singing does. And that's what breathing together does. Well, you know, and I'll take this moment before you bring us to that to say, for me as a yoga teacher, it's interesting. I like the perspective you get. I, I used to get um, a little bit of criticism from some people who said, why don't you just let people do their own thing in the class? And, and I was, I've always been really um, steadfast, strict maybe about like, no, if you want to do your own thing, cool, just do it at home. Because in the class, there is something about letting go of ourself and our way of doing it. And it's, you know, it's not that I'm good or right as the teacher. It's just that I get to play that role and align everybody. And then, and that's where the magic always happens for everybody. Um, and sometimes, especially for those of us. And I've been in that position too. <laughs> I'm like, no, I want to do it my way. Yeah, uh, and, and, and when I let go of that, and it's like, oh, that's when the magic happens. Right. And it's when something else deeper can, can arise, you know? I mean, I'm even, I've found this even in collaborations, creative collaborations. You know, there can often be a little bit of a tussle of people's ego, my song, I want to do it this way. But it's the point that that gets out of the way that something greater seems to arise that, that's both intimate to ourselves, but beyond it, that, that connects to a greater intelligence. Um, and that really, really fascinates me, you know, to engage in, yoga as a springboard to creativity, whether it's writing a song or, you know, designing a garden or, you know, coming up with a new marketing concept, whatever <laughs> it is, whatever you're engaged in. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is ultimately, uh, I find again and again that my mind is capable of a lot of things, but it's actually limited. And when I put it in service of something that is inexhaustible, it's amazing what can arise. So, yeah, um, I don't know how much time we have left here. I could probably explain this mantra and leave us with a song uh, if you want to do it that way. Or yeah, let's, yeah let's definitely go in the musical realm for a moment. Oh, right. Sure. So uh, uh, as a parting shot here, this mantra is Sri Ram, J. Ram, J. J. Ram. There's a lot of I could sing. This one just came up for me now. It is a, a shorthand for a, a very long parable, but a very central one to our human existence. Um, it's called the Ramayana or the Ramayana, sometimes it's pronounced. Um, and uh, in it, it's like 16 volumes, so it's really hard to condense it, but I'm going to try and do the four-sentence version of it. You know? <laughs> uh, but Ram is a king who loses his 
kingdom due to, I guess, palace treachery, intrigue, and his great love, Sita, is stolen by demons. And so he's exiled from the kingdom, has to wander in the wilderness in order to get his love back from the demons and return to the kingdom. And he's aided in this by the god Hanuman, uh, the monkey god, who stands for the idea of service, okay? Why is this relevant to what we're doing? Well, from the perspective of yoga, we are all born kings and queens in this world. We are connected to our divine self, but we lose our love. Um, our kingdom and our love are stolen by demons. And those demons are attachment, anger, desire, sense of like limitation and smallness and difference. All of these things rob us of our sense of connection to, you know, to our, our, our origins in consciousness and wonder and the divine. We wander through much of our lives in a wilderness, really of our own creation. Um, until at some point we realize we are lost and have to find our way home. We need to return to our kingdom and get our love back. How do we do that? Well, the advice that's given is, is has to do with service. It's ultimately service that brings this back. If you lack something, then paradoxically you must give it. If you feel like you don't have love in your life, then you must love. If you feel that you don't have money, then you must give it. And somehow or another, like then you start to become deeply in contact with the source of all um, and realize that it's within you, but also beyond you and coming through you. So in the end, all of this yoga comes down to really this prescription to like serve and to put uh, the uh, in compassion to put others ahead of yourself. And that curiously, if you want to look after yourself, the best way to do it is to be concerned with others. Um, and the best way to learn is to teach. Um, and uh, so these things are all connected. So I'll just sing you a little bit of this or this thing because it's pretty. Sure. <laughs> Ram J Ram J J Ram J Ram J J
you can go see the mantra movie. There's lots of kirtan walas in lots of different styles. And uh, uh, more and more, this kind of experience is accessible to people everywhere. Yeah. And, and a great, um, kirtan's a great metaphor for what you were conveying via the Ramayana, too, that it's, it's really so much of life is about what you give into it. And that's, you know, and for me to return to the question earlier about my experience of singing was so healing for me because I did have that um, trauma right. as, a, as a kid and, you know, so afraid to let my voice out and the metaphors of that are so big. Um, and, and as you said, it doesn't matter in Kirtan whether we're singing or not, it's, yeah. it's letting it out. But and curiously, I found that the people who are singing in tune bring who are into tune. That's part of the entrainment too. Yeah. And one reason why, you know, it's always good to seek, uh, whether it's your yoga practice, people who are more advanced than you, or if in music people are more advanced, uh, the people who are more advanced bring others along with them. Suddenly you realize, oh my God, I'm singing in tune. And you didn't realize that you could. Yeah. Um, so a lot of kirtan schools that I teach, we call it kirtan white school, um, actually really emphatically work on bringing people into a place of alignment with their voice and uh, and their rhythmic ability to tell me it's empowering and way more than being just about music. Um, and that can be said for yoga itself. It's incredibly empowering way than about yoga. Yeah. So And exactly why I love coaching and I love the act of coaching people and I love getting coached myself and while I always have different coaches in my life because yeah. they pull us along. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. All right. Well, I think uh, we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks again to Longevity Drops uh, for sponsoring us. And um, Dave, thank you so much for my being pleasure, part Daniel. of the show. Um, there's always a more about it again sometime soon. <laughs> Um, and y'all, thank you for tuning in and hopefully you sang on your own and, and uh, we'll, you know, we play it back and even if nobody's there or if somebody is there, sing yourself. And thanks for being interested in The Art of Vibrant Living. That's the name of the show. I'm Daniel, your host. Thanks. See you soon. <laughs>